Welcome to the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, the Right Rising podcast. Today's episode features an episode from our Car Populism Research Unit. The Car Populism Research Unit has previously had episodes on examining the populist radical right in countries such as Italy and most recently Germany. Today we head out to Eastern Europe for our episode. We are delighted to have on our show today a special guest. Dr. Catherine Condor is a research associate on the Liberal Turn Project at Loughborough University. With an interdisciplinary background in anthropology, Catherine completed a PhD in criminology from the University of Huddersfield. Her thesis examined pathways to radicalization through a comparative analysis of radical right organizations in Hungary and Great Britain, which used mixed methods to explore questions of recruitment, radicalization, and identity formation. Catherine's thesis was awarded at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Rights inaugural Kasmuda Early Career Scholarship Award. So, Kathy, welcome to Right Rising. Thanks so much for having me. So, Kathy, could you please walk us through some of your current academic research relating to radicalization, political activism, and the radical right? It's also really interesting to see your interdisciplinary research background. Yeah, so one of the great things about um, the study of the far right, or sort of the, the field that we're in, uh, is that it, it really attracts people from all sorts of different, different backgrounds. And it really is a completely interdisciplinary field, um, which obviously brings a lot of uh, advantages <laughs> in that, you know, we approach sort of the same goal, the same sort of family of questions from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, my background actually is um, fairly unique <laughs> in that I, I was an anthropologist. So I was studying as an anthropologist, um, actually a, a skeletal biologist. So I was doing bioarchaeology. Um, and it's from there that I kind of got into the questions of, of race and sort of race theory. Um, and then from there into the study of the far right. So it was sort of a long path, very, very long path for me. Um, and my PhD is actually now in criminology. So I really do take you know, a lot of different disciplines and, and combine them. Um, and within the study of the far right, which obviously is, is, is a fairly large Field, um, I'm really interested in, in social movements. So this idea of, of social movement organizations, the street level organizations that we see, and ultimately the question of, of why. So why? What? What's the interest? What's the draw to people of these organizations? Why do people? Why do people join them? Why are people interested in them? Um, and also, when they do join them, why do they stay there? So what is it? What is the attraction of these organizations? And I think. I think these questions are fundamentally very important because we're seeing a, a rise of the far right across the world. I mean, especially now anyone that's been on the internet at all has seen the issues happening in the United States um, and across Europe as well. We're seeing, we're seeing a huge rise. So that, that's my question because I, I sort of approach life with the idea that nobody's born evil. Nobody is born like this. Um, so there has to be a reason for why people think this way. So, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. At the moment, however, I'm working on a project, really exciting project out of, out of Loughborough, um, looking at um, the, the connection between political attitudes and media use in Central and Eastern Europe. So we're actually looking at four different Central and Eastern European countries, one of which is Hungary, of course. Well, I mean, fantastic, Kathy. It's, it's really interesting to see, you know, such a diverse background, like you're mentioning about social movements, um, you know your your background in in um, kind of the biology side as well, the skeletal biology side. I think this is really fascinating for our listeners as well, and also your your PhD in, in criminology. So I think this is really unique, you know, from from a diverse background like myself. 
as we were discussing just before we, we kind of recorded this episode, I'm from a more kind of political science party politics background. So the way that we would probably you know, design our research questions and even analyze our, our findings will be very different from one another. So this is really fantastic and, and great to hear. So yeah. Capios, I think our listeners who may not know a great deal about Hungary and Hungarian politics, because you just mentioned a little bit about your project in Central Eastern Europe, kind of the media project looking at Hungary. I was wondering for our listeners who may not know a great deal about Hungary and Hungarian politics, could you please introduce us to the political landscape in, in Hungary? For example, what's so unique about the modern Hungarian political landscape, for example? Yeah, so this is a, I mean, this is a fairly big question. <laughs> um, so I'll try to break it down a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm going to wager to assume that many of our listeners are probably not from Central and Eastern Europe and probably have a sort of a Western perspective of, of politics. Um, so what's important to know is that in, in Hungary, so in this entire region, there's sort of a, a uniqueness to its politics because of the history of the 20th century in the region. Um, so, of course, in the second half of the 20th century, um, we had, we had communism in Hungary and in 1989 began the transition out of communism. Uh, and that with itself brought a lot of, of challenges um, for, for the political landscape, sort of finding its legs again in, in politics, so to speak. Um, and in, in Hungary specifically, um, at the cur- currently, currently the Hungarian uh, political landscape is made up largely by one political party. This is the Fidesz party, um, which I know we'll probably talk quite a bit about today. Uh, they're led by Viktor Orban, as people may have heard about in, in the news as well. Uh, they currently have two-thirds majority in, in the parliament. So our, our Hungarian parliament has 199 seats, of which they hold two-thirds, and they have for, for quite a few years now. So um, the rest of the parliament is ultimately made up of, well, the so-called opposition parties, uh, of which there's currently, I believe, six more major opposition parties. So part of the issue we see here is we have one party that's managed to sort of take over the political landscape and essentially decimated the opposition because the way that they've gained the two-thirds power is, is what the law states is that, for I believe, it's 43% uh, of the votes gains two-thirds majority in parliament. And Fidesz always gains this 43%, or at least they have for the past few elections. We have another one coming up next year, next spring in 2022. So because of this, uh, Hungary has fundamentally become a one-party state. That, that's really fascinating you know, for myself and our viewers. Happy to hear about you know, this one-party state, you know, the evolution in Hungary. You know, arguably, you know, we hear some political commentators, scholars saying that Hungary is no longer a you know, full liberal democracy that has seen this democratic backsliding. We've seen this, I think, from the BDM Institute at the University of Gothenburg, where they've classified it as, you know, this a big democratic backsliding event. And for our listeners listening in now, you know, the, the Fidesz party, as Kathy spoke about, they've got this two-thirds majority in the parliament. So they can pretty much, it seems, pass, you know, any type of, of you know, policy into law. So it brings me on really nicely into my next question about, uh, Kathy, what do you think is so unique about the far right in terms of the political landscape in Hungary? Again, it's a kind of a big, broad question, but I, I think our listeners, it would be great for them to kind of hear more about 
you know, the uniqueness as well about the far right in the modern Hungarian political landscape. Sure, yeah, of course. And just to go back to what you were saying, which is a very, very good point, is this this idea of a liberalism that's been been happening in Hungary, where you know Orbán years ago famously decreed that Hungary is now in a liberal democracy, so to speak, and that's what we see this this a liberal turn in the um, in, in the region because he's then influenced other uh, political leaders as well. And yeah, as you said, you know the Freedom House out of the U.S. also concluded that Hungary and actually Serbia um, are no longer democracies, but a but a sort of a gray zone between. Uh, democracy and autocracy, so that yeah doesn't doesn't bode well for the region, <laughs> absolutely. But when it comes when it comes to the far right uh, in Hungary, so that's um, again this is a very sort of um, complicated question because we need to separate out electoral politics from from sort of street level far right movements. Uh, so so that's what we see here. We have the far right that's in our electoral politics. Um, we see. Parties like Fidesz and as many people have probably heard of the Jobbik party um, that we had. And now we have a newer, more extreme party called uh, uh, Our Homeland, Mihozank, uh, Our Homeland Movement. But we also have quite a strong far right in terms of social movement organizations. And Hungary, so Hungary has kind of a, a turbulent history. <laughs> as a nation, let's say. And in order to understand a lot of the far right and what they believe, we do need to understand something about the history of Hungary. And part of the things that lend to sort of the uniqueness um, in the Hungarian far right is the fact that Hungarians sort of entered the area of Europe, like if we look at the history of Hungary in, in the 10th century. And if we look at the history of Hungarians as, as a people, you know, a lot of people hang on to this idea of Hungarians actually being from the East and not being Germanic or Slavic or, you know, one of the more, one of the people who have been in Europe longer. Um, and so this is one of the things that's really held on to by the far right, this sort of othering of Hungarians and somehow, you know, saying that we don't belong necessarily to the rest of, of Europe. Um, and we see this in electoral politics as well with the anti-EU pulling towards the East, towards China, towards Russia. Uh, so, so we do see that in sort of all of the levels. Um, but the other thing that really defines, I think, far-right politics and far-right just ident- ideology, in essence, is this idea of irredentism. And so what happened is, is in the earlier 20th century, um, uh, Hungary was, of course, um, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or rather in the you know, 19th, 20th centuries. Um, and in 1920, after the end of the First World War, uh, Hungary republicanized. And th- at that point in 1920 uh, was the signing of what's called the Trianon Treaty. And Hungary lost a lot of its land, something like two thirds of its lands. And, and the Hungarian lands were then given to the surrounding countries. So the principality of, of the province of Transylvania was given to Romania um, and also other areas were lost to Slovakia, to Ukraine, to um, Croatia and, and, and surrounding and Serbia, surrounding areas. So there's a lot of uh, heartache about this, um, understandably so in some respects, because, you know, families were split across borders. There was, you know, it was trauma to a lot of families and this trauma remained in a lot of Hungarians. But the far right really hangs on to this idea. And this is also something that the Fidesz party, for example, has really latched onto, um, also because this is a good, you know, it, it's also part of 
this idea of ethno-nationalism of the pure Hungarians, of Hungarian ethnicity, uh, as opposed to Hungarian nationality. And, you know, what the Fidesz uh, party has done, for example, is they've given Hungarian citizenship to anybody who can prove Hungarian roots. And so a lot of people in Transylvania and Ukraine and other places have now uh, sought their Hungarian citizenships as well. Um, so this is, this is a big, another big thing. So this, this, um, so the historical aspect, the historical aspect we can call, um, Panturinism, this pulling to the East. There's also the, the Aridentism of the Trianon Treaty. Uh, and the other thing that's, that's fairly large is, uh, anti-Tsiganism or anti, uh, anti-Roma sentiments, uh, in Hungary. That's extremely strong. We'll find that across most of the region here. Uh, so if we if we look at the far right landscape, the let's say the social movement organization landscape, we sort of see these things. We also see ethno nationalism, of course, anti EU. And what's newer um, is fairly strong anti LGBTQ sentiments, uh, which is fairly new um, to the landscape and also to the unfortunately to the political landscape as well. Uh, and, and what's interesting in the group, so we have several of larger, larger far-right organizations, is each one sort of emphasizes one of these things a little bit more. So we have, for example, the 64 Counties Youth Movement. Um, they very much, 64 Counties refers to the 64 Counties before Trianon. So they very much emphasize irredentism. We have other groups like, um, like the Hungarian Defense Movement, for example, who are very, very strongly anti-Roma. Uh, so there's different, so they all believe sort of the same things, but perhaps emphasize one ideology or one attitude over another, and hence can draw in different people, depending on what they find uh, sort of the most important. So I suppose that's in a nutshell the <laughs> ideology of the far right here. Thank you very much, Kathy. I think, what I, again, I found this really fascinating, your, your responses there, because it made me think a little bit about you know, some of the far-right parties that we see in Western Europe, say in countries like France, Germany, even the UK, of course, that have a very different set of history to, say, a country such as Hungary and Eastern Europe. And I think, you know, you, you kind of really delve into the historical factors there. And I think, again, this is really important for our listeners. And what also struck me was, you're kind of mentioning about these different types of far-right parties in Hungary. And I think we're seeing this in other countries where, you know, perhaps... 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in a lot of European countries, we would perhaps see just one main far-right party not dominating a country because they were much more on the periphery back then. But we've got cases, of course, in Hungary now with, you know, kind of multiple far-right parties. And as you as you were saying, what was really interesting was that they each seemed to represent a different a different ideological strand. And you mentioned this about irredentism as well. And then it also made me think a little bit about countries like the Netherlands, even Italy, which of course are completely different to the more Eastern European context, but they've actually seen, you know, in Italy, the two far-right parties, Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, uh, Lega the League, uh, which is the more established far-right party. And then it made me think about the Netherlands as well. So I think we can really see in Hungary that, you know, there's a big debate also to be had about the very nature, you know, how do we define far-right parties? Do we even need to update some of our terminology? Uh, I think this is a debate to be had as well, because, We've seen in, in some of the other episodes we've had with the Car Right Rising Populism Research Unit episode where we've been discussing about some of the misconceptions about 
you know, populism and nativism, and that when we look at populism, we shouldn't obviously conflate it with nativism, which does seem to happen even amongst uh, scholars in, in the scholarly literature. So I, I was again thinking for my next question, and this leads really well into the next question about about um, the question on on Fidesz, about how, how you would classify Fidesz and about how how right wing a Fidesz. Do, do we see Fidesz as a populist radical right party or an extreme right wing party? And of course, when I was researching um, on kind of Hungary or other countries a, a couple of years ago, I would often kind of speak to country experts and they would say to me, well, you know, Fidesz started off as this traditional conservative center right party, but now perhaps could even be seen not as a populist radical right, but as an extreme right wing party. So myself as a researcher, more of a comparative researcher rather than a researcher, say, that's dealing with or comparative party politics researcher, not dealing so much with the social movement side. It often makes me think about how do we classify parties such as Fidesz, for example, ideologically speaking? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's a really great question. Um, it's honestly, I'll be honest, it's something I struggle with because I am not a political analyst nor a political scientist. Um, but I think, okay, so I think maybe the way to start this then is to tell our listeners a little bit about Fidesz because maybe aren't as familiar with what they're doing or why on earth people are even considering calling them um, a far right party or a political radical or a political populist radical right party. Um, so Fidesz in itself, which what's interesting about Fidesz actually is that at the end of the 1980s, so in 1988, um, when Hungary was starting to move out of communism, um, they actually were formed as an anti-communist party. Um, they were, they're actually, so Fidesz actually stands for Fiota Demokrata Xivetsiga, which means the Alliance of Young Democrats. So the Fidesz party actually stands for Alliance of Young Democrats, and they've kept the name. Um, and since then, since the late 80s, they've been led by Orban. Um, there, it, it's, <laughs> it's difficult to categorize them because... They have been redefined, especially in the last five years or in the last 10 years. They've gone through this, this, this yeah, absolute redefinition in the scholarly world. Uh, in, in 2015, um, Kasmuda actually referred to them as a mainstream conservative party with radical right policies. Um, now, I know since then, you know, minds have obviously been changed because Fidesz has changed quite a lot even since 2015. Um, but they were slow to redefine them. I remember a few years ago, I started calling them a far-right party and I, I, got, I got looks <laughs> at the time calling them a far-right party. But, but now it seems that, you know, there is a little bit more agreement there. Um, so some of the things that they've done, just to, yeah, just to, just to clarify this a little bit. Uh, Fidesz, in essence, has managed to legitimize a lot of far-right ideology in electoral politics. And there's a, there's a large question in my mind about, do we call a party a far-right party? Like, do, does it matter if the people in the party actually believe these far-right attitudes that they're pushing? Or is it enough that they pull these emotions and attitudes and feelings out of the citizens or out of, out of the people of their country? And I, I tend towards the latter. So do I necessarily believe that, that Fides believes everything that they do and everything they, they say? No. But do they draw those sorts of feelings from the people? Yes, very much so. So in the last few years, we've seen a pull towards uh, more anti, so-called anti-migrant 
um, or xenophobic attitudes. Uh, we saw a huge migrant campaign around 2015 migrant crisis, a refugee crisis in Europe. Um, they had a huge billboard campaign around the country. So very strong xenophobia when relatively speaking, Hungary has very, very low levels of immigration. Um, and especially asylum seeking, if you look at it that way. Um, they recently, I'd say clearly the newest thing is very, very strong anti-LGBTQ attitudes and very strong anti-trans uh, attitudes. And what's interesting there, and which was quite shocking for me, um, doing my own sort of research on, on far-right organizations, so not the political parties, but the organizations, is seeing that they're also adopting much more of these anti-LGBTQ attitudes, or let's, let's say being more vocal about them. I think they were always there, but they're being more vocal about them because Fidesz is almost giving these, these groups legitimacy to be even more vocal than they already have been. Um, and we see these strong irredentist attitudes, you know, um, they, they've been, let's say, involved quite a bit with the Hungarian minority in Transylvania. Um, which has caused tensions there, of course. Um, and yeah, so it's very strong irredentist add to sort of the importance of Trianon and things like that. They've pushed the importance of Christianity, so to speak, in the country. They've changed the education system to reflect this. So there's, there's a, the, the elementary education system now includes aspects of, you know, having to push this Christian ideology on students. The history history books now include Bible study, essentially, and that's in the framework of history uh, and pushing sort of these Hungarian, so-called Hungarian cultural values. Um, you see strong nativism, strong authoritarianism, of course. So all of these things are there that really, really, you know, point towards them being a far-right party. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but the question of populism <laughs> is a question that I really do struggle with. I have to tell you the absolute truth. You know, it, it's it's not necessarily my area. Um, and I know there's been a lot of discussion around populism when it comes to Fidesz, and especially around Central and Eastern Europe, because populism is going to look different in Eastern Europe than it does in the West. It absolutely does. So, so populism has this sort of idea at the heart of it of, of the people versus the corrupt elite. That's, that's essentially at the heart, I think, of, of a definition of populism. And, and this idea of our people, our poor people, and, you know, the evil other or the evil corrupt. Now, when we talk specifically about populist radical right parties, of course, um, they have a tendency to sit as sort of this intersection between, between a party and a movement. But that's something that we don't have with Fidesz. So it's a little bit different. But if, if we talk in a minute, maybe about uh, Jobbik or about one of the other ones, they, they, they do. So, you know, there are differences even within what we would call populist radical right parties, even in one country, <laughs> so to speak. But what Fidesz has done and the way that they what they've done is they've created a corrupt elite. So if we look fundamentally at the political sphere in Hungary, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but the corrupt elite would be Fidesz. That, that is them. I mean, they're rife with corruption. And since, since the transition in 1989, that corruption is something that has absolutely defined popular, popular politics <laughs> um, in the region and especially in Hungary. And the corruption that we see, I mean, it's not even hidden anymore. It's, 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 it's open. It's blatant. It's in everyone's face and, and people see it. So it's, it's there. 
So can we say that a party led by the so-called corrupt elite is populist? So what they've is, but, but yes. So the answer is yes, because of the creation of another corrupt elite, which is not really a corrupt elite, but is sort of this fake scapegoat. And we see this especially, um, for example, in the last few years, we've seen a campaign against George Soros, which has then now extended itself to essentially the rest of the world. I mean, we see this in the United States, we see it in Western Europe, we see it everywhere, there's talk of it everywhere. And George Soros has been made into this evil, capitalistic nightmare for, the, you know, for Fidesz or for Fidesz's followers, essentially. Um, and I mean, there has been also talk about sort of the, the um, uh, yeah, sort of why, you know, why they've started this campaign. And, you know, there's been suggestions of anti-Semitism as well and other things. But, but you know, I would tend to point more towards this sort of populist ideology, this sort of populist motivation. Um, and of course, this brought with it the closing of um, the Central European University in Hungary and its movement to Vienna, unfortunately. So that's not been super great for the country there, to put it lightly. Um, so yeah, so this, in essence, I think does point towards them being a populist radical right party. I think the radical right part is sort of, you know, yes, I would absolutely agree that they are radical right or far right. I know that there's other podcast episodes dealing with the definitions of those, so I encourage listeners to check those out. We don't have time to go into those now, um, but but I would say so. And and some of the other things they've done, for example, is is whenever there's a new question that comes up with one of these campaigns that they start, so the campaign against George Soros or a campaign against Brussels, because Brussels has sort of become the key word to represent the EU and the evil EU here. Um, what they do is they send out what's called the national consultation, and they send out questionnaires and surveys to ask the people how they actually feel about these things. And they get the survey results back and say, well, there's a resounding agreement with everything we're doing. So the people agree. But for anyone that's ever worked in survey design or in social sciences, looking at these surveys, it's very clear that the person that designed them knows exactly what they're doing because there's literally no other result that could come out of these surveys. There, there is, I mean, they're almost, they're laughable, to be honest. <laughs> they're, you know, I've kept them as mementos. <laughs> I have to tell you, because they're just, it's incredible, you know? I mean, I, I can't off the top of my head give, give an example. Maybe something like, you know, um, George Soros uh, wants to eat all of your children. Do you think it's good that George Soros will eat your children? Yes or no? And I mean, <laughs> you know, so these are the types of questions. I mean, that's obviously an exaggeration, but but that's that's sort of the, the things that we see. So. So we do see this, you know, again, the creation of the corrupt elite and the asking the people how they feel about, you know, different policies, that in itself points towards populism. Um, and also the authoritarianism and the nativism, which is obviously um, characteristic of populist radical right parties. So, yeah, that's, again, if it's not clear, I'm struggling with, <laughs> with the answer to that. But, but yeah, I think so. Thanks, thanks, Kathy. Again, I think what, what you really highlight well there again is this complexity about you know the term populism, and, and of course when we look at Fidesz, you know, the, definitely it seems to be a radical right party, but of course the populism angle does it kind of fit the you know I think yeah. our listeners will kind of see that it's much more complex than perhaps when they've read you know recent articles or if you just read an article on the BBC about 
Fidesz or say in the Guardian, we can see it's actually extremely complex. And that leads really well on to my next question. And I was just wondering briefly, Kathy, it's again a, a difficult, perhaps a challenging question that, that I am sometimes unsure about myself, but about the classification of, of Jobbik. How would you classify you know, the Jobbik party? Because some commentators, I, I believe in the past, have kind of referred to it as you know, an extreme right, a radical right, sometimes even this kind of neo-fascist party. And it, it's made, made me quite confused about how do we label this party or classify this party? Yeah, yeah. So Jobbik is really interesting. So I think what I'll do for um, for the sake of our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar is I'll give a little rundown of who, who on earth Jobbik is and then um, talk about uh, how I think they could be classified. So so Jobbik... Um, Jobbik is actually a play on words. It's actually really interesting. So in Hungarian, it's the Jobbik Magyarországi Mozgalom, which is a movement for better Hungary is the way that we can translate it. But Jobbik, in essence, Jobb, the word Jobb in Hungarian means right. And it also means better. Well, kind of like in English, right can mean correct as well. But, you know, it means better and it means right. So it's actually quite brilliant because it, it's referring to the better right, in essence. Um, so, so there's no question, even in their name, that they are... A right-wing party. That's that. That's you know, yeah, yeah. There's no absolutely no question there. But so Hungary saw. So Hungary has sort of had a relatively strong uh, far right throughout the 20th century. I mean, obviously communism sort of muted that um, throughout. But after the 1980s, we saw a resurgence of the far right uh, in Hungary, and this started um, with the Hungarian Justice and Life Party, in essence, um, called NIEP. And NIEP stands for the Hungarian Magyarish Igoshagishi, that's that. So that's that's NIEP is how I'll refer to them, um, which is interesting. But it was started by uh, a person in in 1993 um, who's actually a writer, which is interesting. And it was sort of a reaction to this post-communist transition um, and, and tended to label people as anti-Hungarian and really started this sort of them and us of the post-communist transition. Um, you know, the evil communists and the equating of, of Jews with liberalism and this anti-Semitism. So this, this really huge culture of, yeah, anti-Semitism and, um, that, that revolved around the far right then. And they actually received over 5% of the vote at the end of the 1990s. And started to decline slightly in their popularity in the following elections in 2002. And shortly after that, they joined forces with this brand new political party, uh, Yogi. And they were actually founded in 2003 as a political right party that came out of social movements. So they actually came out of the far right movement scene. Um, out of one of the bigger movements than the Hungarian Guard. Um, so the then leader of Jobbik, or the founder of Jobbik, Gabor Vona, was uh, a member of, of the Hungarian Guard. So it was, it was solidly rooted in the far right. So there's no question where this started from. And it, if we look at sort of the typical definition of a populist radical right party, of this sort of bridging the gap between a movement and a party as well, Jobbik absolutely 100% was that that there is absolutely no question there. And they fairly quickly started to gain traction um, and eventually split from the altogether. Um, and in 2010, 
got over 16, 16% of the vote, which for a party who is so openly anti-EU, racist, very anti-Roma, um, it's shocking to get over 16% of a vote that quickly, uh, which I think speaks to also the political climate at the time and, and the political climate that's continuing, really. And after that, in, in 2014, they actually received over 20% of the vote, so, so even more than that. But after that, they started to decline. So the last elections we had a couple of years ago in 2018, they declined a little bit uh, to 19%. And at that time, the um, leader of the party, who was still Gab Wadwana, he made, he made a promise that if they didn't win the election, he would step down. And they didn't win the election because Fidesz won the election, as everyone sort of suspected would happen. Um, not much of a question at this point anymore. Um, and so he did step down. And at that point, what we, what we had already seen, so it's sort of from, I mean, it's difficult to think back now. So much has happened in Hungarian politics in the last few years, and it's difficult to think about, you know, how many years ago that was. But several years ago, Jobbik started a transition because they were trying to gain more votes. So they started to mute their image. They weren't as openly anti-Roma anymore. They started to reach out to Jewish organizations. You know, they started to try to be less racist, less irredentist, less everything. So what they did is they muted their image. But at the same time, what Fidesz did is they realized that they could, all of the, all of the voters that you'll be lost for becoming more, so to speak, center or more towards the center or less radical, let's say that, for becoming less radical, Fidesz saw that they could gain. So they started to pick up some of the narratives, some of the attitudes that you'll be sort of started to lose. So we started this gradual, or we, they started a gradual shift of, of changing places. And, and that led to Gabor Vona stepping down. And when Gabor Vona stepped down, the party fractured. And what happened there is now we have the Yobik party. And the Yobik party actually has, I would say, joined forces with the rest of the opposition. So they have become much more of a center-right party. In fact, the person who now leads Yobik, who has been in Yobik since the beginning, so he's no, not a new member to the party, but the current president, is actually the descendant of a Holocaust survivor. So we very, yeah. <laughs> so we very much, you know, the, the party has, has changed its image, let's say. <laughs> um, but because of that, has lost voters. But now, you know, has reached out to some of the more typically liberal parties in, in Hungary um, to sort of join, join forces. So, yeah, what happened after the 2018 election was a fracturing of the old big party. So what we had was the more extreme faction of the party, which split off into the newer Mihazank, Mozgolom, or the Our Homeland Movement party, which was, or uh, which is, led by Laszlo Korotskoi, who is, as I mentioned before, the um, founder of the 64 Counties Youth Movement. That was the group that I had mentioned uh, before, the very irredentist movement. And he now heads this political party. Um, so I, I don't think that necessarily the Our Homeland Movement is a, is a threat to Hungarian politics because they're such an extreme party. But the fact is that they do have a presence. And if anything, their presence is, is there, or let's say, how should I put this? Fidesz is allowing them to have a presence because it's making them seem less extreme, right? So, so 
they do have a function, at least from the perspective I think of Fidesz, have a function in Hungarian politics. And so the rest of Jobbik has reformed as Jobbik <laughs> and is more a center-right party. So, but the traditional Jobbik that most people talk about that we still see in the literature is the pre-2018 Jobbik, which was very much a populist radical right party in every sense of the word. They were against the corrupt elite, which for them was Fidesz, right? Or, you know, I guess George Soros and everything like that, because a lot of people latched onto those things, but it was ultimately Fidesz. So they were the traditional populist radical right party um, and who were openly anti-Roma, anti-Semitic, uh, anti um, you know, xenophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, pro-Christian, anti-EU, anti-LGBTQ, et cetera. So yeah, this is definitely the, the switch that we've seen in Hungarian politics and it's quite difficult to wrap our heads around it. And I still find it really interesting that there's a lot of publications, perhaps less now, uh, focused on Jobbik and focused on Jobbik as the far-right party in, in the Hungarian political landscape. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think if people are fo- focusing on the far-right in Hungary, in politics and electoral politics, it's Fidesz. It's Fidesz and to a far lesser extent, the Our Homeland Movement, from the perspective of them being extreme, a, a truly extremist party. Um, but yeah, I think Fidesz is definitely the way to go for people researching the far right in, in Hungary and politics. Thank, thank you again, Kapi. I think for our listeners you know, listening into this podcast episode, we can see how important it is to make a distinction here about, you know, we've got these two different types of, of Yobic parties and particularly now we see a more center-right version of this party. We see such a complete, you know, ideological transformation and arguably, you know, Fidesz has made the opposite uh, transformation, it seems. And so this pre-2018 distinction for Jobbik as well, I find that particularly important. I think particularly for researchers, comparative researchers who are looking at the far-right party family or even looking at the two different variants, the radical right versus the extreme right. This is an incredibly important distinction to make by, by the fact that now, Jobbik is such a different party you know, in 2021 compared to, say, 2018. So as a, as a party politics or more of an electoral studies researcher, I think this is, a, this is an incredibly important point that, that Kathy raises. And on a similar note, coming to my final question now, uh, an article that you recently wrote, Kathy, uh, that was published by Fair Observer titled Amidst a Pandemic, Central and Eastern Europe Witnesses an Erosion of Democracy. This article got me thinking quite a lot about the overall effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on you know, the far right, but particularly in terms of the overall European political landscape. So for our listeners listening in, what, what was your main argument in, in that piece? <laughs> this piece really came out of what my current work, uh, what, we're, what we're doing now, because you know, we're looking a lot at, at media and you know, thinking a lot about um, how little free media there is in this area. So especially, I mean, talking about Hungary, there's really, there really is absolutely no freedom of media, which has influenced a lot of things, especially around the COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah, the current project that I'm working on and looking at political attitudes and looking at how these attitudes have changed, you know, and how people's, people's attitudes, for example, towards democracy, I do mention this at the end of the piece, um, towards democracy and towards, you know, more autocratic uh, forms of government and how people have become more accepting towards these autocratic forms of government. And I think that was sort of one of my, my points. So the ultimate point here is how Central and Eastern Europe, how politics in Central and Eastern Europe have shifted because of the pandemic. 
because there has been quite a large shift uh, in many senses, but also in that politicians in this area, particularly in Hungary, have taken advantage of the pandemic. So they've taken the pandemic and rather than trying to, for instance, you know, bring measures that just for the sake of, of the well-being of everyone, they brought measures that help their own political, political motives. In Hungary, we've seen um, the Enabling Act that was passed, the first one that was passed back in April, I believe, and another one that was passed back in November, essentially giving Orban, in this case, full power. And the argument here was, you know, in a pandemic, we don't have time to go to, to government. We don't have time to, you know, debate things in parliament. We need to pass things right away, which in one essence is understandable. The issue with that is that the first things that they passed were not anything to do with, um, with the pandemic. So this November, when they passed the second enabling act, uh, the first things they passed were laws against LGBTQ. So they've now changed the constitution to say that marriage can only be between a man and a woman and children can only be adopted by men and women. Um, so obviously that causes a huge slew of problems, even beyond uh, being extremely anti-LGBTQ. There are anti-trans legislation that's been passed, uh, which essentially says that a person's uh, sex at biological sex at birth must be... Um, put on their identity card because in Hungary, Hungary people carry um, identity cards that does state their sex and they cannot have their, their gender on their identity card. It must be their sex at birth, which obviously brings up a slew of mental health issues and everything else for, for the trans community who's already discriminated against. So it's, it's, it's absolutely awful um, what they've done. They also changed the voting legislation, which is crucial because we have our next elections in Hungary next year. Uh, and they essentially made it impossible for the opposition to run as a coalition. So they've eliminated the possibility of coalition governments. Now, I should say that Fidesz itself is a coalition government, but I think the coalition aspect there is fairly minute, you know, and I think it's a risk they're willing to take when it comes to decimating, absolutely decimating the opposition. So they have taken advantage of this um, and, and looking at how people, you know, have reacted to it. Um, of course, there's been negative reaction, but our project, which had surveys um, and interviews conducted at the beginning of the pandemic, it showed that at the very, very beginning, uh, people actually were okay, relatively. There were people, I should say, there were people who were okay with this, this autocratic shift. Not everybody, clearly not everybody. Um, but it draws questions. Essentially what it does is it brings up questions about democracy in the region and, and how, how um, politicians are reacting to it and importantly, how the people are reacting to the shift. Because I would expect more of an outcry, you know, and, and there has been, but the fact that there are people who are okay with this um, is very, I think is very, very interesting. Thank you, Kathy. It's really fascinating to, to hear more about that, we just mentioned about the coalition governments and, and also the, the LGBTQ aspect as well. And I think, again, our listeners have, uh, you know, for the whole episode, are really in store for a treat here in terms of so many important areas that are being discussed. And I think what the podcast episode does really well is really highlight the uniqueness of not just the Hungarian country case, but also particularly the political landscape of Eastern Europe and how you know it's different to our first two episodes that we've had for the Carl Populism Research Unit, where we focus more on the Western European cases of, of Italy and Germany. 
So I'm wondering, Kathy, where can interested listeners find your, your research? Do you have a Twitter account or a website that listeners could you know, check out some of your latest research or, or works? Um, yes. Yeah, so you can find me on the CAR website, the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. You can find some information about me there. I also do have a Twitter account, which I probably should use more than I actually do. But you can find me at I am Dr. Condor, written out I am D O C T O R. I am Dr. Condor, Condor's with a K. Um, so yeah, you can could, you could find me there on Twitter. And I have a website coming at some point. Thank you very much, Kathy. Thank you for coming on the show today. And it's great to get all of your insights. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.